Our God in heaven, we come in the name of your worthy Son this morning to give you our lives, our hearts, our praise, our worship. We give ourselves into your capable hands as we open together the word of your Son. And we learn of him. And we learn of his gospel. We learn of his eternal kingdom. And we learn, Father, of your love for us that would bring us in to that embrace of your Son. We are grateful for his work on Calvary, understanding that we don't deserve any of it, but nonetheless, by your grace, it is through his sacrifice that we can receive forgiveness and be restored in fellowship to you. So our God, this morning, we are joyfully coming into your presence to look at the words of your son, to look at the testimony and the life of your son and understand that by your spirit we're given an understanding of what he has done for us and how he's called us to himself and he's given us new life. So, Father, would you minister to us this morning as we study together? Give me the ability to speak clearly and well on your word this morning. And may it penetrate our hearts and minds in a way that affects a transforming change so that we become more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. We pray it in his name and for his honor this morning. Amen. Well, join me in John chapter 9. We are finally returning to our study in John's gospel this morning. John chapter 9. And you can follow along in your scriptures as I read verse 1 down through verse 12. John 9, beginning verse 1. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, But it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle, applied it the clay to his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Therefore, his neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but it is like him. But he kept saying, I am the one. So they were saying to him, How then were your eyes opened? And he answered, The man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed, and I received sight. They said to him, Where is he? And he said, I do not know. I am often amazed at how often, as we turn to God's word, we look at different passages, and we find in entirely different passages such rich continuity from where we had been before. And I'm referencing the past three weeks when we looked at Ephesians chapter 4 and we looked at the essential nature of the church and understood that Jesus Christ has given to every believer a special ability or gift of his grace that when properly used 
serves the spiritual needs of church members. But it is not just spiritual needs that those gifts minister to. Ultimately, that's the end, where we're grown up spiritually in the image of Christ and the unity of our faith together. But if we look at the inventory the Scripture gives to us of spiritual gifts, many of those gifts minister to our physical needs as well as spiritual needs. And what that means for the church is that we need to extend care and compassion to temporal needs as well as eternal needs. Both the physical and the spiritual are to be the ministry of the church according to the gifts that Christ has given to us. And this is exactly what we see exemplified in John chapter 9. The entire chapter is given to the Lord's ministry of this one beggar, this blind man. And we observe this blind beggar did not even ask Jesus for help, at least that John records. But Jesus pauses in his travels. He observes a man with a physical need, and he ministers to that need. And as the story progresses, we're going to learn that serving that physical need was also that which opened the door for Christ to minister to this man spiritually as well. And this is not only an example of Christ's service to people's needs for us to observe, but it's an example of compassion. It's an example to us of mercy. John 9 shows us the heart of ministry in the Lord Jesus Christ who sets this example for the church to minister to needs. And it shows us that caring for the temporal heartaches of men, men and women should be seen as an opportunity to bring needed care to the spiritual needs of people as well. And we see abundant examples of this in the New Testament church where the church is ministering to physical needs that burden people in life, even as the church is called to spiritually grow one another in the faith. And in this sense, both the physical gifts or the physical ministries should be working hand in hand with the spiritual needs. We think about the teaching ministry, the mercy, the service ministry, the exhortational ministries, all of those gifts that God has given, whether we're ministering to the physical or the spiritual, they should be working hand in hand. And this, of course, stresses again the importance of what Hebrews 10 directs believers not to do, and that is to forsake the gathering of ourselves together. Because when we come together together, as the author of Hebrews writes, we are stirring one another to love and good deeds, right? Even without the so-called pandemic that is before us, people have needs. Some of our folks, because of this virus, have to stay home. But if we took all of that away, some of our folks will still have to stay home because of age or other health issues. If anything, this gives the church the opportunity to minister to those kinds of needs, among other many, many needs within the church, both physical and spiritual. And this will produce within the, the body of believers this unity where we're growing together because not only are the spiritual things being attended to, but the physical needs that are connected with suffering in life are being cared for. The miracle that we see here by Jesus Christ in John chapter 9 is a picture 
given to us of ministry towards physical suffering while at the same time giving testimony to the Lord's true identity and his life-giving ministry. And this again will open the door for this one blind beggar to come to the spiritual understanding of his greater need. And we'll see that as we move in to chapter 9 through the next few weeks. This miracle healing was an opportunity also to address a provocative question I think that many wonder about. What about sin and suffering? What about sin and suffering? And this is where our study is going to begin this morning as we look at those first three verses again. And these verses revolve around the question that the disciples give because they're wondering, they're looking at this man. What about sin and suffering? In our last study of John, chapter 8, we left Jesus declaring himself to be the I am of the Old Testament scripture, a declaration of his deity. And for this, the Jewish rulers picked up rocks, presumably to put him to death. Jesus withdraws withdraws himself, being hidden from their view. Yet the very next thing that John records here in chapter 9 is Jesus openly displaying his deity in what is now the sixth of seven miracles that John records in his gospel narrative. The next one will be, of course, the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11. But this miracle, chapter 9, is the sixth of the seven miracles that John presents in his word. And one well-known author and pastor, Pastor Kent Hughes, has observed, among many other scholars, that the miracles in John's gospel are always used to teach a deeper spiritual truth. That sets him apart from the other gospel writers because John is very selective in the miracles that he writes into his gospel narrative so that he can communicate a deeper truth. And we're going to see that in this particular miracle today, this morning and at least in our study. Among the miracles of Jesus healing people, this miracle is somewhat unique in that we've, we don't find this blind man asking Jesus to be healed. And most of the other miracles that we would look at in the Gospels, we would find the, the, the hurting person, the suffering person, calling out to Jesus or reaching out even to touch his garment or inviting Jesus to come back home and, and perform a healing on somebody that is loved there. But here we don't see that blind man even recognizing Jesus. In fact, as we look at verse 11, if you jump ahead, it suggests that this man was not even familiar with Jesus. What takes place in our text finds Jesus healing a man almost as a response to the theological question of the disciples. And in his response, in the response that the Lord gives, he teaches some important truths about sin and suffering. And at the same time, he reaffirms his previous testimony that he is the light of the world. And in this miracle, he shows to us what compassion towards human suffering looks like and how it can be used to lead a sinner to eternal salvation. Now, where or when this takes place, John does not say we can presume that they're still in the area of Jerusalem, perhaps in the city itself, and this may be right on the heels of what took place in chapter 8. 
Some have suggested that this healing takes place near the entrance or, or at least the beggar is seated near the entrance of the temple because that may be where beggars would likely set up their begging camp when the worshipers are coming to and from the temple itself, hoping to appeal for some compassion or mercy. And you can almost picture Jesus and his disciples walking together, conversing back and forth. Jesus spots this blind man in perhaps the beggar's corner of the city, and he likely stops to observe him for just a moment. The disciples pause with him, and they look at this blind man. And they asked Jesus the question. Now John tells us of this man's birth defect, defect right here at the beginning of the story. And that detail, that the man was born into blindness, adds a bit of drama to the miracle since we can only imagine the excitement of a full-grown man that for the first time opens his eyes and he sees things. You have to wonder how life would be so very different for a man that was born into blindness, never having seen any objects. He touches, he hears, he smells, but he has no objects in his mind. Now, I can look at you folks and I can close my mind or my eyes, but still in the brain I have images of you. We can picture a sunset or colors or the mountains that are capped with snow. But a man born blind, he has none of those images. There's no reference point. When, when we go to sleep, we dream. And in those dreams, we have visions of objects and people and circumstances. Blind men will also dream. But what do they dream about if they're born into blindness? Because they have no vision. They have no history of a vision. A, new, a newborn baby has to adjust to vision over the first few months of his or her life. But picture this man washing in the pool of Siloam and at that moment opening his eyes and seeing that which he only smelled or touched or heard previously. That one detail right there in verse 2 adds a lot of drama and this drama is going to unfold later in this blind man's conversation with the Pharisees. But before the healing moment comes, the disciples observe this man that Jesus has paused to look at. And they ask the question, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Now we're not told how it is the disciples knew that detail about this blind man that he was born blind. Perhaps he was a regular fixture in the beggar's corner, and he was known throughout the community as the one that was born blind. He'd never had any vision. Or perhaps as part of this man's appeal, crying out for money and for support, he was saying, I was born blind. Do you have any extra change to spare? Maybe he was holding up their traditional cardboard sign. Need help, born blind. How it was that this man was known to be born blind by these disciples, we are not told, but the question itself gives Jesus the opportunity to teach some important doctrine and then to demonstrate, again, the proof of his divine nature. And not only that, to demonstrate a heart of mercy. In the thinking of the disciples, only one of two options are possible here. 
either the man had sinned or his parents had sinned. But like most Jews, they believed that sin and suffering were connected. Now, in the case of the man sinning, there resulted in his blindness, since we have already been informed that the disciples knew he was blind from birth, this would mean that the man had sinned prior to birth. Scripture does teach, it does tell us that all men and women are born with a sinful nature. We know that much. David in Psalm 51, as he's grieving over his own sin with Bathsheba, said, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David even understood that we're all born into this world with a sinful nature. That was common knowledge among the Jewish people and certainly among the disciples of Christ. Yet the words of the disciples indicate that they believed one could commit sin while in the womb, and the result of that sin would be punishment that brought suffering to the sinner. That's the question that they pose to Jesus. They're not suggesting that this man had a sinful nature at birth. They already knew and understood that truth. What they are suggesting is that this man sinned while a fetus in the womb, and because of it, God brought a particular punishment against this man in blindness. And this was the commonly held belief in Hebrew thinking at the time. They believed it was possible for a fetus to commit a sin and therefore God to judge that sin. In fact, rabbinical thinking at that time would teach that Esau had attempted to commit murder against Jacob when the two contended in the womb, remember, back in Genesis. And therefore, in asking the question of the Lord, the disciples wondered if it wasn't the blind men that had sinned. And so God struck him with blindness before he was ever born. If that's not the case, surely the fault then must lie with the parents. And the punishment from God was a blind baby. Now another thought may have been that the parents sinned in a way that caused suffering for the baby. For instance, Today, a mother that is using drugs illegally while she's pregnant and that child is born with a birth defect. That's a possibility. Yet this does not seem to be what is concerning the disciples here. The context of both options, were that, at least what were on the disciples' mind, indicates their thinking that this blindness was God's direct chastisement for either a sin committed in the womb or sin committed by the parents. And the answer that Jesus gives does not deny that sin and suffering are connected. If anything, it supports it. In verse 3, Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned, nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. We know that the scripture teaches us that suffering is ultimately the result of sin. And I think we've all heard the question from at least the unbelieving world, why do bad things happen to good people? Now that's secular thinking, right? But Christians should always be able to answer that if it's asked of them because there's a problem with the question itself, right? Doctrinally speaking, the question is at fault because the reality from God's word is that there are no good people. There's none that does good, 
No, not even one, it says in Romans chapter 3 and verse 12. The bad things that happen are the result of living in a fallen, sinful world. The answer that Jesus gives does not deny that reality. If anything, it affirms it. Because what Jesus is saying is, it was not a particular sin in the fetus. It was not a particular sin in the parents. But there exists a fallenness in humanity. We're all depraved. We're born into sin. And because of it, there is the curse. There is pain. There is suffering. And there is death. In addition to sin and suffering being connected in this general way, the effects of particular sins can also be felt by others in the years to come. And we have an example of that as the children of Israel left Egypt. And remember, they were disobedient to the Lord. They grumbled against the Lord. And God said, because you are a disobedient and a grumbling people, you will not enter the promised land. Your children will then enter the promised land. So that generation was not allowed to enter into God's blessing. So what happened to the children of that generation? They had to live in the desert too for 40 years, didn't they? Or at least however old they were. So they lived under that judgment of God. In God's word, the suffering effects of sin can be felt for generations to come. But the Old Testament also teaches that God does not directly punish children for the sins committed by their parents or vice versa. And I've given you a couple of supporting texts on your note sheet for that. Second Chronicles 25, Ezekiel 18. Each person is responsible before God for his own sins. So the disciples look at this man born blind and they want to know whose sins are responsible for God's punishment for suffering here. And the answer that Jesus gives rejects both options given by the disciples. And this tells us that the disciples had in mind God's direct punishment against those specific sins, either the sins of the fetus or the sins of the parents. But what Jesus does not reject is that sin brings suffering, pain, sickness, and death in humanity. That is understood in his answer. That truth is clearly taught in the word of Christ. So we know that Jesus is not denying the connection between sin and suffering. But Jesus continues by saying that this blindness was allowed by God so that he might display his works through his Son. In other words, God purposed to reveal his glory through the suffering of this man's blindness that came as a result from the fallen state of mankind. And that fallen state is the cause of sickness, it's the cause of birth defects, disease, death, and even congenital blindness that this man was suffering under. God would use that defect to put his works on display. This is the word that Jesus was communicating. Now I want to bring up what you folks at home already are able to see on your note sheet. If it, there it is. This is by the scholar Frederick Bruce. He adds a point of clarification that I think it is helpful for us to understand. He writes, This does not mean 
that God deliberately caused the child to be born blind in order that, after many years, his glory should be displayed in the removal of the blindness. To think so would again be an aspersion on the character of God. It does mean that God overruled the disaster. I love the way that is put. It means that God overruled the disaster of the child's blindness, a blindness that came as a result of our sin nature, so that when the child grew to manhood, he might be, by recovering his sight, see the glory of God in the face of Christ and others, seeing this work of God, might turn to the true light of the world. Do you understand what Bruce is saying as we look at John chapter 9? Why is this man born blind? The disciples asked. This is a common question that many of us face as we're interacting with the world. Why this happened? And especially when something happens to children, we're especially sensitive to that. Why does God allow these things? But the reality is these things, suffering things, these pain things, these sickness, disease things, even death itself is the result of our sinful nature. God in his grace and, and his mercy at times chooses to overrule that disaster, to show his glory. And therefore, we are to know that what Jesus did for this man who was born in blindness was to bring out into the open the very character of God. The Son of God would show to the world what God is like because he, Jesus, is God. And that's how John opened this gospel, wasn't it? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is openly displaying the glory of the attributes of God in bringing help by overruling the disaster that sin has caused with this blind man. With that in mind, we must then consider the work of God that Jesus did put on display as he performs this miracle, this wonder of God. In verses 4 to 7, we're going to consider the display of that work and the wonder of the miracle itself. Jesus speaks to the work here that he was sent to accomplish in this world. He then performed the wonder of his healing power over this blind man. And I want you to notice the works of God in verse 3 are the works of Jesus in verse 4. They're one and the same. And notice that Jesus even includes his disciples in this discussion when he said, we, the plural, must do the works of him who sent me. God sent his son to do the works. And while Jesus was primarily the one performing those works, he had recruited 12 men to join with him in this God-glorifying ministry. The reference to day and night in verse 4 adds a sense of urgency to the work of Christ. And it was meant to show that there was only a limited time to accomplish what God had given his son to do. Jesus then mentions, while I am in this world, verse 5, which tells us that Calvary is in view. So long as Jesus was in this world, he was to do the work of being the light of God's glory. And his disciples would labor alongside of Christ, making God known by what Jesus was sent to accomplish. 
And that wouldn't be limited to miracles and healing. It would also include his teaching ministry, his preaching of the gospel, the calling of men to repentance. But the light of God would be demonstrated most clearly of Christ's work of God on the cross of Calvary. Paul writes in Romans chapter 5 that Christ dying for our sins was a demonstration of God's love, wasn't it? When Christ went to the cross and did the work of God, he put on display the love of God. And it was through that sacrificial act that the grace of God was put on display as God would turn and forgive people that are unworthy to be forgiven through the sacrifice of his son. The light of God's righteousness is understood as we look at the death of the Holy One of God, God's Son, who bore our sins upon himself, that we might become the righteousness of God. So the character of God's righteousness is put on display by the work of Christ. And as Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the word of the cross is the power of God to save sinners. So even the power, the might of God is put on display as we, as we witness the works of Christ that he was sent to perform. Jesus then demonstrates this God-glorifying work to heal a man that was born blind. And in verse 6, we see Jesus spitting on the ground, creating a couple of clay eye patches, putting it on the man's eyes, And then he instructs the man, I want you to go to the pool of Siloam, which tells us they were likely very near or in Jerusalem itself. The blind man finds his way to the pool in a way that he had learned to travel all of his life in his blindness. He washes in the waters, and it says he returns with seeing eyes. John then adds a detail in verse 7, giving us the meaning of the word Siloam. Why is he throwing that in there? The pool of Siloam, it means sent. It's the word Shiloh or Shiloah. And the significance of this pool is that it is supplying water to Jerusalem. And this came about during the time of King Hezekiah, remember when the Assyrians threatened to invade the city. And so Hezekiah ordered the cutting of this tunnel from the Kidron Valley taking the waters from the Kidron Valley and feeding those waters through this tunnel into the city. And that pool that fed in, or the the waters fed into the city was called Siloam or sent. The waters were sent into the city to bring life and to rescue the people of Jerusalem from the attack of the Assyrians. We visited that tunnel. We walked through that tunnel when we were in Israel. And if you're claustrophobic, you would not enjoy that travel. It's a 1,700 foot, I think 1,738 feet of tunnel through rock. It's very narrow. And apparently they started at either end of the the temple mount and channeled channeled underneath the temple through rock and they met in the middle. And you can see where they met in the middle because there's a slight jog in the tunnel. It's amazing they could even do that. Like two moles burrowing from one end to the other, and they meet in the middle. And that tunnel feeds water into the pool of Siloam. So we understand scent, don't we? This pool brought water from the Kidron Valley into the city. It was sent into this tunnel. 
And I think it's hard to ignore why the Apostle John feels it's necessary to give us a definition of Siloam here in this story. Throughout his gospel record, John has repeatedly described Jesus as the one sent from God. The one sent from God. John further quotes Jesus describing him again and again as the water of life. Sinners are very often described as being blind in their sin. So Jesus sends this blind man to the pool of water, which represents the one sent by God to be the water of life. And the result, blindness is taken away and this man receives sight. Do you see the deeper truth in this miracle that John is communicating? This is a picture of our salvation, isn't it? It's a picture of God bringing us into the light and stripping away the scales from our eyes. No longer are we blind, but faith is given. We understand, we see Christ for who he is. He is the water of life. It's a powerful picture of salvation And it's powerful because as the blind man would later tell the Pharisees, since the beginning of time, this kind of miracle has never been heard of. That a man that was born blind has been given his sight. Even the blind man understood the power of this particular miracle. William Hendricks, or Hendrickson, offers this insight to this miracle. He said, the deeper meaning is surely this. That for spiritual cleansing, one must go to the true Siloam. In other words, to the one who was sent by the Father to save sinners. That's the great object lesson in this miracle. And because of it, in the works of Christ, we're seeing the very character of God, are we not? In the saving of sinners. And I think what is curious is that Jesus uses his spit to make clay to apply to this man's eyes. I mean, there are other occasions where Jesus uses his saliva to heal a deaf and a dumb man or to, to heal another blind man. But to actually spit into the dirt and to make a clay patch and put it on this man's eyes, that is unique. But we're not told why Jesus does that. We can only speculate. And to be sure, I think it gave Jesus a reason to send him to the water of healing to wash his eyes in the pool that represents the water of life that opens his eyes to see. At the very least, putting the mud on his eyes did that much. It caused the man to go to that pool to receive help. I have to wonder if this procedure was also intended to remind us that Jesus is the potter and we're the clay. And sin has corrupted that clay work, has it not? And here Jesus makes more clay and brings healing. That's merely my speculation. But the wonder of this miracle had to be incredible for this man. He had learned to navigate through the city in blindness all of his life. And here for the first time in the pool of Siloam, the pool of scent, he receives sight. I imagine him returning with some difficulty in his way back. He had navigated all of his life by sound, by touch, perhaps a stick, as he feels his way through the streets, and all of a sudden, there's all of these objects here. You wonder if he even knew at that moment where his own home was, because now navigation was completely different. 
We're not told that he returned to Jesus. In fact, he didn't even know what Jesus looked like. But the sound of his voice, I believe he would always remember. It was the words of Jesus that expressed to him, I am the light of God to this world. I was sent into this world to display the very righteousness of God's character. Jesus was moved with compassion, and his words communicated to this man the mercy of God. It was the words of instruction that brought hope to this man. And notice we see no indication this man grumbled. Remember Naaman in the Old Testament. Go to the River Jordan. He grumbled about that, didn't he? There's no indication this man objected in any way to the words of Christ instructing him, take those muddy eyes, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. All we know is the man immediately did what the voice of the Savior told him to do. And in this man, there was enough conviction in the words of Christ that this man rose in obedience. He washed in the pool and he received sight. And in healing this blind man, Jesus demonstrated the work that God had sent him to accomplish, displaying the wonder of his divine character. And this brings us to verses 8 through 12, where we see a conversation that I refer to as confusion and conviction. Because as the healed man returned to his neighborhood, you can picture the acquaintances and his neighbors seeing him walking, and they immediately can see a change. No longer is this man stumbling or groping. Nobody's leading him. No stick in his hand. He's not feeling his way along the streets or the buildings. He's navigating his way home with surety. His eyes are clearly focusing on objects, and you can tell when a person is focusing, right? Have you ever had a conversation with somebody and you can tell their mind is wandering? They're not really listening to you because their eyes wander. We can tell by people's eyes if they're focusing, the people could clearly see something was different about this man. And they respond in amazement. And it's amazing to me how they respond as well. I was reading in our creation magazine that we got just recently a story that is often told about an atheist. Atheist has a a red house, I believe. And he tells God, well, if you're up there, turn my house blue the next morning, I'll believe. I'll believe you're God. The next morning he wakes up, he's got a blue house, but then he begins making excuses. Well, nature must have come along and changed it. And he has several different excuses as to why his house was gone, has gone from red to blue. And we think about the rich man and Lazarus in that sense. Because isn't that what happened there according to the, G- the story Jesus told? Lazarus died, the rich man died, rich man says, I don't want to be here. This place of judgment is a bad place. I want to go back and warn my brothers so they don't come. And Jesus said, look, even if somebody comes back from the dead, they're not going to believe. Here comes a man that was born blind, and he sees. And as that man will later say in chapter 9, this has never been done before. In the history of fallen humanity, never has a man been born blind that has received his sight. And here Jesus comes. I don't even know this guy, but I know his name now. I know his voice. And at this point, he hadn't met Jesus with his eyes yet. So he may have passed Jesus on the street, heading back to his home, and not even have recognized him. 
But the people recognize there's a change. They say, wow, is this not the guy that used to live in our neighborhood or the baked in the streets? And look at the confusion here. Some are saying, is this not the one that used to sit and beg? They saw that it was the same guy. Others were saying, no, it's not he. Some said, yes, it is he. Some said, no, it just looks like he. But the man kept saying, no, I am the one. It is me. Some questioned. Others recognized him. Some speculated differently. Yet this man was assuring him, no, but it is me. The neighborhood began to question him. How then is it possible that you have received a sight? He didn't know a lot of details. But the blind man now healed gave them just the facts. The man who is called Jesus made clay. He anointed my eyes, told me to wash in the pool of Siloam. I obeyed his instruction. I washed in the water. I received my sight. These neighbors and acquaintances had mixed responses, showing the disbelief that even religious people can have towards the Lord Jesus Christ. And bear in mind, these were Jews. They knew God. They knew the power of God. They had the testimony of the Old Testament Scripture. Their God was the God that parted the waters of the Red Sea, that caused the plagues to happen, that raised the dead. These were Jewish people, had knowledge of God and the power of His hand to work miracles and wonders, yet here stood a miracle right in front of them, and they couldn't grasp God's handiwork. They couldn't see it. Some thought one thing while others thought something else. Faithlessness toward Christ will always produce confusion and uncertainty. Men trying to explain the divine nature of Christ himself. You you are all watching on the news, the fires all up and down the West Coast. And as the media and the, the, the weather people try to explain what's happening, something has come up in the discussion where people are now saying, especially from one particular candidate for office, this has to be global warming. And probably global warming is the president's fault. I'm just guessing at that. But they're seeing all of these fires taking place. They don't know what to do with it. Don't know how to explain it. It could be this year has been a dry year. And fires have started. Maybe I'm simplistic, but maybe it's not global warming. Maybe this isn't the result of fossil fuels. But we see all of this confusion about what's going on. And I think even this scene here in Jerusalem, pictures the touch of God's mercy on the life of the sinner who is first born again in Christ. This is a picture of what it looks like for us. Because when people look at us, when we come to faith in Christ, they know something is different. They maybe don't like it. They maybe don't approve of it. But when a sinner is exposed to the saving grace of Jesus Christ, like this blind man, we can tell something is different. It's evident to those who once knew us that we're not the same. The world of unbelievers are going to have mixed responses when they look at believers. Some are going to respond by thinking, well, religion just has a way about changing people. Religion in general can have some positive benefits. Others will deny that there's any real lasting change. Oh, they're like that for now, but they're going to be just like us 
Some people might even conclude that the new Christian has come under the spell of religious devotion. And we're, we're seeing that more and more. The religion, the Christian religion, is a religion of deception. But the world would generally not look at the new transformed believer and conclude that they have come under the saving grace of God, having experienced the mercy and compassion of Jesus Christ, who is indeed the light of the world. They generally are not going to come to that conclusion. We might be caught under some deception. We might be experiencing some benefit to religion. Or it's just a temporary change. It's just a phase they're going through. John does not tell us that any of the neighbors heard the blind man's testimony and turned to Jesus in faith. They went running to Jesus to learn more about him. But John does show us the boldness of this blind man to testify of the mercy and the power of Jesus Christ. And at this point in the story, the man with new eyes also had a new vision of God's Son, though he had never yet seen Jesus. In his testimony to his neighbors, the healed blind men did not yet know how much about Jesus. He only had a snapshot of what this man was about. And according to verse 12, he didn't even know where Jesus could be found. The neighbors are asking him, where is he? Well, he doesn't know where Jesus lives. He doesn't know where he hails from, where he's setting up camp. And the verses to come, this seeing man is going to continue to demonstrate with great conviction and discernment the questions that will be thrown at him by the spiritual leaders there in Jerusalem who also deny Jesus as the true Messiah of God. Now, we're just getting into this story, but I want to leave us with a couple of thoughts for us to meditate on in regard to the example that Christ gives to us here and his healing power, a demonstration that should stir within us our affections for Jesus and his ministry towards us. I think there are many lessons for the believer in this story, but here's just a few. That's how I keep you in suspense. There it is. Number one, Jesus teaches us to look at human suffering with compassion. Jesus looks at the blind man, and he feels compassion for him. Just go back to verse 2. The disciples look at that same man, and doctrinal questions come up. And I have to say, when we look at suffering and the issues of sin, we might be more like the disciples, where we have questions. We want to have dialogue, theological discussions. And there's nothing wrong with the discussion itself. There was nothing wrong with the disciples' question. It just shows us a little bit of a difference between the heart of the Savior and the heart of the disciples. Jesus looks at this man and immediately he's moved with compassion. Disciples, they have questions. Now, without a doubt, we need to see our world from the view of righteousness as Christ instructs us. But Christians can be prone to merely look at the world around us with doctrinal concern or correctness rather than with mercy and compassion. And I can say that of myself as well. We look at the world that is in chaos right now, and we can often come from the viewpoint of moral disdain for what's going on. 
rather than pitying man in his depravity. And it's all around us. We learn from Christ, I think, not to ignore human suffering. Second, Jesus teaches us to look at ministry with a sense of urgency. A sense of urgency. In Ephesians 5, verse 15 and 16, the Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time, because the days are evil. We've often heard that Jesus didn't seem to ever feel rushed or pressured to be somewhere. Certainly not as we often do. But at the same time, he knew that he had only so much time in fulfilling his earthly ministry. And I think we've often noted in our study of John that Jesus withdrew from conflict because he knew his time had not yet come. Jesus may not have been a person that was rushed here and there as we are, but he always had his eye on the watch. He always had his eye on the calendar. Calvary was always on his mind. It was his purpose to make the most of his time while he was on earth. And that's what he says in verses 3 to 5. I was sent into this world. As long as it is daytime, I need to be busy about doing the work of God because nighttime is coming when we can no longer work. He's referencing Calvary there. He knows that he only has so much time. And and here in this miracle, there's just a few months left until that infamous Passover. So he teaches his disciples, make the most of your time. We don't have a Calvary before us, but every one of us has a grave in front of us. And what Jesus is teaching his disciples, he is also teaching his church. We have the work of God to do. Make the most of your time while it's night, while it's daytime, because the night is coming. And third, Jesus teaches us that the works of God must display God. The work that we do for Christ must display the character of Christ. Doing good works for others, even alleviating human suffering, can be very mechanical for us. And this, I reflect back on what we looked at in Ephesians 4. Speak the truth in love. Remember how we looked at 1 Corinthians 13? And again, those first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. We can do a lot of marvelous works. If we had great faith to even move mountains, Paul said none of that would mean anything if we have not love. We can do good things for others. But is the character of God evident in our work for Christ? We're to bring glory to God in how we serve him. And this is why it is so essential that we are growing to be more like Jesus Christ. Our maturity must be directly connected with our ministry, our sanctification, with our service. Because the more we grow to be like Christ and we serve him, the more others will see Christ in the work that we do. And again, I speak from a a person that happens to be very mechanical sometimes in doing the works of service for the Lord. It's a reminder here to me to show the compassion of God in my work, to show the mercy and the grace of God, to show the righteousness of Christ in what we do. In our work for God, we must display 
God. We glorify Him by how we minister to the needs of others. We serve the needs of others with compassion and mercy, living in the righteousness of Christ, promoting the light of His character since He is the light of the world. We serve in a way that leads people to the cross. And I think even in our courage to share the gospel, you look at Jesus Christ and you see how bold and courageous he was in the face of great opposition to preach the gospel, to proclaim himself. And then you look at this blind man. Would you not say he is courageous? We're certainly going to see that as we move ahead in John chapter 9. What's he doing there? He's emulating the Savior that just healed him. And already is proclaiming Jesus in his neighborhood. I don't know much about him, but this much I do know. And having received that amazing miracle, you can bet his heart was filled with affection, with passion, and with conviction. If you'd received that kind of gift, you would be filled with that kind of conviction. And yet we have received something even more precious than vision to our physical eyes. Our faith is precious, according to Peter, as he writes in 1 Peter. Do we have this kind of divine passion for Christ and the gift of sight that we have been given, that we would so emulate his character in our work? There's much for us to learn in this miracle in John chapter 9, and I trust that we'll be able to apply these things more and more as we study together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your deep love for sinners. I thank you, Father, that though we were caught up in the misery and the suffering of our own sin, you have condescended to overrule the effects of sin by the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ. We are here as your people to give praise and thanksgiving to you. Father, in this presentation this morning, if there's some that are listening that are yet without Christ, that still maybe have had that blindness, spiritually speaking. We ask of you that you would draw away that darkness and bring in the light of your Son that they might see. And for those of us that belong to Christ by faith, Father, may we learn from our Savior what he has to teach us about ministering to the needs of others and doing the works of our God. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.